Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we look at why puzzles and word games such as Wordle aren't just fun. They can be great exercise for the brain and could help delay cognitive decline. But like all workouts, variety is the key. We take a closer look at new StatsCan data on hate crimes in this country that show a 37% increase between 2019 and 2020, making it the worst year since data collection began in 2009. Specifically, a 301% increase in police-reported hate crimes against East and Southeast Asian Canadians. We ask what needs to be done to counter it. We dive into the fight over a proposed condo development on Juno Beach in France, where hundreds of Canadians died on D-Day in 1944, and why Ottawa needs to get involved to put a stop to it. But first, with supply chains already stretched to the breaking point, how a potential work stoppage at CP Rail as early as Sunday morning could have devastating consequences. Let's start tonight with a labor dispute that threatens to further strain the flow of goods in this country, already stretched by the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, and we could all feel the impact of what's about to come if it in fact happens. CP trains could come to a halt as early as Sunday. CP Rail could lock out 3,000 employees if they don't have a deal with the union by Sunday. The two sides are at odds over 26 outstanding issues, wages, benefits, pensions. Canadian business and agricultural leaders warn the stoppage could be, quote, catastrophic. CP's rail, CP rail system is huge. It runs across southern Canada, dips as far south as Kansas City, moves grain, potash, coal, much, much more. Tonight, the premiers of Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba have sent a joint letter to the Prime Minister, staying a disruption of this magnitude stacked on an already stressed system could be severe and ask that Ottawa take, quote, immediate and effective measures to ensure that service on CP's rail network resumes as quickly as possible if a strike or a lockout should happen. And to look at longer term measures, such as declaring rail an essential service. Here's Scott Moe earlier in the week. We would urge uh, all of those at the bargaining table to do everything that they can to come to some type of an agreement um, so they can continue with services. And if they're not, we'd ask the federal government uh, to step in and ensure that we are uh, have interrupt, uninterrupted service uh, here in Saskatchewan. Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan there. It's not just on the prairies. Obviously, many businesses rely heavily on rail services to send their and receive their goods from Canadian and international suppliers. Industry groups are calling on Ottawa to do something. Joining me now is David McLean with the Trade Association, Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters. David, thank you for being here tonight. Oh, it's great to be here, Ben. Uh, I mean, this couldn't come at a worse time, could it? Just how damaging could it be if this goes ahead? Well, I thought, you know, the the bottom of the barrel or, you know, the rock bottom was during the the convoy blockades of the Coots border crossing in Alberta and, and in Ontario. I thought that was the the rock bottom, but this is... This is as bad or worse uh, than those situations. As you said in your in your opener, uh, we are already in a supply chain crisis. We have been arguably even before the pandemic. Uh, we've had a trucker shortage for for years. That's a, that's a global problem, and so this is just uh, compounding uh, a really bad situation. How much stuff? I mean, we know how much, if you've ever been, you know, through, if you live in BC and if you've ever driven to Alberta, you know just how long those trains are, those freight trains heading to port. What kind of stuff is moving on those trains as far as your your uh, folks are concerned and what will happen if it stops? Well, we know that about 50, almost 50% of all rail traffic, all cargo that is shipped by rail in Canada are manufactured goods, either coming in or leaving Canada. We also know that um, 15% of Canada's exports uh, are shipped by rail at some point or another. Uh, it's about 4,500 rail cars per day uh, of manufactured goods are shipped by rail every day. So it is significant. It's it's by far the most important mode of transportation within Canada. You got to remember, Canada is such a big place. Uh, we are un, un, unusually reliant on rail to to you know um, to to ship things across this massive country. So it, it's a massive system. And what happens when it's, I mean, what happens if it stops? We're already seeing, you know, obviously anybody who's been to any kind of store recently realizes there are shortages of lots of stuff these days. What happens if the rail stops? Well, that certainly gets worse. So the worst case scenario is empty store shelves for consumers, 
But for businesses like my members, manufacturers right. you know, on the on the prairies, we're already seeing decisions being made, slowdowns. Uh, I have some examples of companies that are, have temporarily laid off shifts uh, simply because they already either can't get the the product they're looking for, they need for their their vital inputs into their manufacturing processes, or they anticipate a slowdown in the future. Um, companies are making decisions now to mitigate the risk. They're saying, okay, well, let's go to CN or let's see if we can ship by truck instead. But as I mentioned before, we've already got a truck shortage. So we're seeing spot prices for trucks uh, triple or quadruple what they were one year ago. And guess who pays for that? It's consumers at the end of the day. So it's going to contribute to uh, inflation, which is already a nightmare. No, yes, absolutely. We've been talking about that a lot uh, of late. Just for, for your members, having to try to make these decisions, they've already been in a crunch, because we talked about this in the lead up to the uh, to the mandates, to the vaccine mandates. Obviously, we talked to trucking associations a lot about just how stretched they were. Uh, so for your members, there is nowhere to go, is there? I mean, there's there are, there are no alternatives, really. Not really. I mean, there's their CN, which is already, it's a competitor of CPs. It's the second rail line in Canada. It's already congested and, and uh, has its own issues. Uh, you know, I have one company that is is looking at a, a total shutdown. They manufacture a compound called uh, Carbon Black, which goes into making tires and printer toner and all that sort of stuff. It's exported globally. Uh, 80% of that company's business is shipped by CP. There is no other alternative, uh, so they'll, they're looking at uh, a pretty dire consequence if if the shutdown should happen. Are there, I mean, do you have any, you've watched these, this isn't the first time there's been a labor dispute in the rail industry. Mm-hmm. How, do you have any faith that this may be negotiated into some kind of settlement before Sunday morning? Well, since 1993, we've been to this movie before. Uh, since yeah. 1993, we've had nine uh, collective bargaining negotiations between these two groups. Eight of those, eight of the nine times, the federal government intervened in some way. There's some sort of mitigation, either binding arbitration or legislating back to work. Uh, so the federal government is often involved. Uh, there have been four labor sh- labor stoppages or, or shutdowns or lockouts or strikes since 1993. So it's happened four times before. You can go for a couple of days or a week before um, a settlement is reached. What the rail line is looking for is maybe binding our arbitration. Uh, we're great with that. Whatever it takes to get a deal, we can't afford a day of of a rail stoppage, let alone a week. So we need all hands on deck to to try to get a solution for this. That's what I was going to say is that if it does, in fact, even begin, I imagine your membership is going to start making some tough decisions. Oh, absolutely. The decisions have already started in terms of mitigating risk and exposure to CP rail. And then once it gets real on Sunday, then then we'll be seeing uh, uh, stoppages. We'll see uh, manufacturing operations shut down. I'm particularly concerned on the agri-food sector, the agriculture sector, the availability of feed and fertilizer. Seeding is right around, right around the corner. Um, and fertilizer is already in short supply due to the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, so uh, that could be a very dire situation for agriculture and, and basically every sector of the Canadian economy. Yeah, we, I mean, we certainly see the political pressure mounting on Ottawa to do something. The premiers of Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba sending a pretty lengthy letter today. Um, call it, you know, and, and farm groups as well, calling it inconceivable that this would happen. Uh, where would we see the impact, do you think, as consumers, if, if in fact this comes to this comes to to go i mean we've already seen food prices skyrocketing uh there's been warnings for at least for food and you mentioned agribusiness that that this could have really dire impacts yeah i think in the short term it might be you might not notice a big difference for a day or two or a week but very quickly without in the absence of that rail line uh there'll be chronic shortages of of almost every consumer good in, in the country. And it's particularly concerning with food. It's already expensive. Um, and low-income families are going to have trouble uh, uh, feeding the, their families because uh, foods go, go up 10, 20, 30, 50% in the short term until uh, the problem is fixed. So, um, you know, the food space, the grocery items, I think are the biggest concern. Uh, maybe um, it, the manufacturers of the broader business uh, community is almost secondary to that. 
But I also worry about the long-term impacts, the, the blockades that we saw from the, the convoy. Um, now this, it, it undermines Canada's reputation as a trading nation. It undermines the relationship that manufacturers build with their customers and their suppliers in the United States and in Asia and beyond. Um, so this is really impor important stuff. It might be when times are great, we might say, okay, let's, let's, uh, let's let this play out as it will. Let, let's let, let nature take its course, so to speak. But not now, not this year, not 2022. We cannot allow uh, uh, an extended shutdown. I'm speaking with David McLean of the Trade Association Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters. We're talking about a looming CP Rail work stoppage that could see uh, CP Rail grind to a halt as early as Sunday morning and the impact of that on an already very strained supply chain in this country and around the world. When we come back, we'll talk about what could be done when this, when the smoke clears here. What could be done to build more redundancy into a system that finds itself severely strained by anything from natural disasters uh, to blockades to labor disputes, as we're seeing over just the past six months? We'll be back. I'm speaking with David McLean of Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters. We're talking about a looming CP rail strike that could see CP rail grind to a halt as early as Sunday. The huge impact that could have on an already stretched supply chain. It brings up, you know, the analogy of the cup that's spilling over. You add another drop and it just gets worse because normally this wouldn't, this would be bad, but it feels like it'd be even worse now. Given what we've seen, David, in the last six months with the blockades, um, the flooding in BC that had an impact on rail, uh, the uh, the war in Ukraine. Is there any way to build more redundancy into this cis transport system in this country that would that would help your membership? I think there is. I think there's opportunities for expansion. It it might require uh, government support, some public money. Uh, we start with the ports, for example, the marine ports, Port-au-Prince, Rupert, Port of uh, uh, Vancouver, uh, Montreal, and and uh, Halifax. All of them have ambitious expansion plans. Some are underway. Uh, there's billions of dollars potentially uh, waiting to be invested in those ports. If if the government could play a role in facilitating the expansion of those ports beyond which beyond that which the private sector would do naturally, maybe that's worth looking at at this point. Um, our airports, our roads, our, our our border crossings, our land crossings, all can be upgraded, modernized, and streamlined. I think. Um, even going back to the, the the blockage of the Suez Canal almost a year ago, right. uh, I think a lot of people have been starting to think, okay, we are exposed here, that we are at risk, and uh, we we do need to build in, as you said, some redundancy. And I think there's opportunities to do that. It's just going to cost some money. The build back better uh, aspect of this one would think we need to build a better system to move our products to market to bring products in. It, it just seems like a natural one now. It does. And, and I think it's important to remember that this problem doesn't solve itself very quickly. We, we anticipate uh, the global supply chain uh, slowdown to, to continue on into 2023. Our members say they've already lost, I think, $10.5 billion in sales uh, uh, during uh, the, the supply chain crunch of the past year during the pandemic. And, and we're still waiting for a lot of goods, uh, chips, automotive parts, a lot of materials still to, to come to North America. So this is going to take months, if not years, to achieve some sort of equilibrium. So we best get on it now and, and start uh, finding ways to prevent this from, from repeating itself in the future. It brings up one of the more vivid conversations I remember from the blockade of the, uh, of the Windsor Bridge, which was from one manufacturer in Windsor saying, you know, I sell my stuff, a lot of most of my stuff to the U.S. And if I have a U.S. client who looks at where, who can I rely on? Who can I rely on? And it's not Canada. That business doesn't come back. And it's a reputational matter too. And that's, yeah, that's I, I guess that, that for I, your membership, that's a tough part. I hear that all the time. Um, we are, Canada is a, you know, we, we're a great manufacturing country. Uh, we do wonderful things, but we do things, we're at the higher end. So we're kind of a high cost jurisdiction to do business. So we're constantly competing with the likes of India, uh, China, uh, Korea uh, to, to, to produce in the products and, and compete in those global markets. Uh, any little advantage we can get, uh, we need to take and any damage to our reputation can really, can really do 
significant harm to the economy. So we're always fighting, we're fighting an uphill battle against global competition. We're winning in many cases, and I'm proud of, of, of the manufacturers in Canada able to compete globally, but man, it's tough and we can't, we need to do everything we can to, to make it easier. And certainly not being able to get your products to market on time, or at least delivered on time just adds to those headaches. Uh, I have about a minute left. Um, come Sunday, are you right now, are you feeling optimistic or, or are you fearing that the worst is going to unfold and we're going to be talking about this on Monday and weighing what the consequences are? I'm optimistic that that cooler heads will prevail because I think they see the situation with with what's happening around the world right now uh, that this is not the time to to push and maybe both sides uh, the CP Rail and and the Teamsters Union uh, will will see fit to to compromise here in order to get a deal done and keep Canada moving keep Canada in business and I hope they they see the importance of that. David McLean, thank you so much. Have a nice weekend. I hope you're right. I hope we're not talking about this on Sunday, other than to say that it was a crisis averted. Fingers crossed, Ben. Well, if you listen to the show, you know I enjoy word games. And it turns out, according to my next guest, I enjoy word games because I'm good at word games and I don't do other games because I'm not as good at them. And that's not a good thing. Apparently, you need variety to work out your brain. So word games are great, but you're generally using the same part of your brain every time you go do something like a crossword puzzle. So you need variety. Your brain will thank you for it later, apparently. Joining me now to explain is Robin Hsiang, Associate Professor at UBC's Faculty of Medicine in the Division of Neurology. He studies the brain, memory loss, Alzheimer's disease, and related dementia. Welcome to a little more conversation. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's an interesting topic we talked about. I find myself playing a lot more games now than I used to, principally because of Wordle. So now I play something called Global, another called Worldle, another called <laughs> Hurdle. Um, and what you've posited is that variety really is a good thing when it comes to these sorts of games. Why is that? Well, because each of these games stimulate a particular part of the brain. For example, Wordle may uh, make you think of spelling of different words, and that helps you retrieve uh, different words. And it's a part of the brain that stores uh, word uh, knowledge and uh, information. So by playing that game, it stimulates that part of the brain. But um, but it doesn't necessarily improve your mathematics, for instance, and it doesn't necessarily improve your visual spatial skills. Your brain is organized uh, so that there are many different uh, aspects uh, of uh, cognitive function is stored at different parts of the brain. So the more variety of games that you do, the the better stimulation that you get. So it's almost like like phys like working out. Uh, if you only work out one muscle of your body, then you're, you're not doing yourself. But is that is that about right? Yeah, that's a good analogy. So you you lift a lot of weights with your arms, you get big biceps, but you can have weak legs. <laughs> you have to do <laughs> do exercise all over your body in order to get a strong body. So when it comes to something like Wordle um, or a crossword puzzle, for instance. Am I using the same part of my, my brain when it comes to, to that kind of deduction? So even using crossword puzzles in Wordle, they are slightly different. Okay. So I, um, when I was asked to comment on it, I, I learned playing Wordle. And, um, and it's kind of a, a, a variation on the game mastermind when I was playing as a kid. Right. So it, it, you have to guess a sequence of uh, colors. And it'll give you a cue, whether it's uh, black or white. If, if it's black, then you get it at the right place. If it's a white peg, then you get it the right color, but it's in the wrong place. Right. So if you don't get any pegs, then you, you don't have that color. So Wordle is a play on that. So it will give you a cue whether the location of the letter that you guess is in the right place or in the wrong place. Right. And then... Uh, but Wordle is different because it uses words. So there are certain combinations that are not words, so it doesn't work. <laughs> so it, you have to know your uh, five-letter word spelling pretty well in order to retrieve that memory. But you also need to use some logic, like whether the placement of the letter is correct. So, And it's different from a crossword puzzle. A crossword puzzle typically gives you very short cue um, that relates to a word that 
may be a meaning, but it may also be something else related to that word. So it it uses a slightly different form of memory retrieval, but uh, in both cases, it improves spelling. <laughs> but right. for Wordle, I guess particularly five-letter words. <laughs> yeah, I mean Wordle. I guess the letter, the words in Wordle aren't particularly complex, uh, and there is a sort of a system to it, just like crossword. My grandmother used to always say, my late grandmother used to always do crossword puzzles because she said it kept her brain sharp. And I guess she was right. Yes, yes. it's um, it's very good to keep on playing puzzles. So w- when it comes to the different varieties of things that we can do, when it comes to using puzzles to sort of work out the brain, if you're someone who really likes word games, for instance, say you like Wordle and you like crossword puzzles, what other games should you, what other things should you be looking out to do to try to give yourself a more balanced brain workout? Right. So people generally are attracted to things that they're doing well with. (laughs) So if you are a journalist and writer, you're probably quite good at playing crossword puzzles already, but you may not be so strong with arithmetic and and mathematics. So it may be helpful to do some Sudoku. Sudoku is not really mathematics, it's more like a location and logic. Um, But but there are other mathematical games like... um, uh, for instance, uh, if birds are crossing the river, like uh, there are 10 birds and how many lakes are there? Things right. like that. So you can do uh, different type of arithmetic puzzles. Um, and and then there are also uh, visual spatial skills, which is very important with uh, everyday activities. So uh, sometimes uh, I would say that video games are actually pretty good with <laughs> visual spatial skills and also eye-hand coordination. Um and uh, and most importantly are the the logic type of games because if you use logic you are using uh, something that we call executive function that is the frontal lobe uh, and it, it involves uh, solving everyday problems so if you're very good with logic then then you can uh, help with solving everyday functions that makes you i guess it, it makes the function more useful yeah i mean and, and- because you did mention that people have a tendency to gravitate towards things they're already good at. So in other words, you're working out a part of your brain that's already pretty well developed. Um, You did have some recommendations to avoid the frustration of starting something, say, that you're not very good at uh, and using it to try to work out maybe a part of your brain that might be underused, for instance, maybe not underused, that might be the wrong word, but, but trying to build up a new part of the brain can be frustrating. And you, uh, and you have some advice on how to make it less frustrating. Yeah, well, it mostly has to do with game design. Game design is actually very similar to exam design by teachers. So if you're a teacher and if you make your test like everybody fails, then they lose their interest or they they lose their confidence. Uh, But if it's very easy and everybody get 100%, then it's too simple and they, they get bored. So... Um, game actually video games designers know that and uh, the sweet part is about 75 percent success rate so you get up about three or four three out of four times right and then uh, one out of four times you get it wrong and and that will stimulate you you will figure out why did you get it wrong that time or or why didn't you solve the puzzle Um, and and then uh, it will get progressively harder when you get better and better at the game you you get harder to continuous uh, continuously stimulate you um so yeah so if you are not very good at a certain type of games for instance arithmetic Mm -hmm. then start with something simpler like do the easy ones first and when you're getting good at the easy ones then go for the harder ones just like any other skills that you learn you have to start from the easy and then work up to the hard ones you've written that in fact and you obviously are an ex you know you study dementia, um, you've written that this, in fact, can have really beneficial or beneficial consequences for people when it comes to uh, warding off cognitive decline. Right. So this builds on the uh, cognitive reserve theory. So um, uh, my my main job is study dementia and um, cognitive impairment and how to ward that off and how to treat it. And we know that brain cells uh, although are a bit resilient, but once you lose them, 
um, even if you gain new ones, you have lost the connection. That's what we call synapses, the connection between brain cells. And that is um, how we learn. When we learn something new, uh, we make more connections between brain cells. So by developing more connections, learning more things and uh, keeping your brain functioning, you keep these connections alive. So when you need to retrieve the information, it becomes very efficient. And in order to do that, you need a healthy brain. So um, the best way to ward off dementia is actually learn many new things while your brain is normal. And when people start to develop cognitive impairment and early stages of dementia, um, we still want them to stimulate their brain. But if we force them to do something that they are already not very good at, for instance, if people have early stage Alzheimer's, their short-term memory is very bad, um, but if you force them to learn like a, a list of 12 words or a lot of memory information, they are having a lot of difficulty and that can be frustrating. So um, sometimes uh, uh, overly forcing them to do things could be uh, detrimental to their health and, and their well-being. Um, so th- we have to walk a fine line. But the best way to prevent dementia is early on while we're still uh, healthy, like at uh, the age 40 to 60 range. Actually, the, the younger, the better. It, um, learning different games and puzzles also help the developing brain. So it's actually very good for kids to play a wide variety of puzzles while they are developing because it helps them to learn many different functions. I'm speaking with Robin Xiang, Associate Professor in UBC's Faculty of Medicine's Division of Neurology. He studies the brain, memory loss, Alzheimer's disease, and related dementia. We're talking about the benefits of doing puzzles, not just Wordle, but a whole range of puzzles to try to work out the brain, to keep the brain in good shape. After this, we'll talk a bit more about that whole idea of it's better to start young um, and how to make yourself time and what you should be looking for. Uh, How much time do you need to spend? How long is a good workout for the brain? In other words, we'll get to that after this. I'm back with Robin Hsiang, Associate Professor in UBC's Faculty of Medicine's Division of Neurology. We've been talking about the benefits of playing games. This was inspired, of course, by the vast popularity of Wordle and all its many offshoots, uh, including ones that I play, such as Worldle, Global, Hurdle, uh, and many others, if you have tried those yet. Uh, you were talking uh, before the break about uh, about starting young. And I'm wondering what kind of time should one devote? Um, Everyone knows sort of, you know, an hour at the gym is okay. Some people know that people spend longer than that. Some people will know even just a bit of exercise is good for you. How much time should you spend if you want to start young and keep your brain in good shape? How much time should should you spend sort of figuring, you know, at least devoted to things like games? That's a good question. Um, I I am not the expert in, in younger brain development, right. but um, but probably just like exercise, there's um, uh, optimum time, and if you overdo it, you may actually stress your muscles out. So. Um, most uh, games, um, they can probably keep your attention for a good 20 to 30 minutes, um, and then you get a break um, and then move on uh, or or come back later if you have difficulty. Probably um, it will be the same, but I'm, I must say that I'm not the on younger brain development. I will have to look it up. <laughs> look up <the> information. <laughs> that's, no, that's, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Um, we have an aging population, obviously, in Canada. This is we've talked about this a lot in terms of what impact it will have on 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 things such as dementia in in the coming years. Um, I, I suppose from where you sit, it must be very important that younger people, as you mentioned, forty to sixty, are acutely aware of of the sort of, of what one can do to try to ward off, or at least try to do what you can to uh, to to prevent cognitive decline. Yes, um, so that's the, a lot of the research data is showing that um, there are a number of risk factors that are linked to dementia, um, other than the cognitive reserve, like how good your brain function is. There are a lot of uh, medical risk factors, like high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, overweight, things like that. And it probably helped um to prevent the disease, you have to start thinking about it 20 years before your disease onset. So to prevent dementia to come on at age 70, you have to start looking at your risk factors at around age 40 to 50. 
to try and uh, keep your blood pressure well controlled, uh, avoid high cholesterol. Uh, if you have diabetes, that needs to be controlled, things like that. And um, that really helps to prevent the later onset dementia. Mind you, there are still people who are perfectly healthy, but they still get dementia. And some of those are probably due to genetic factors. And uh, unfortunately, some of the genetic factors are not modifiable. So um, uh, we're still working hard on trying to find a treatment for those patients. We do, I guess, have a better, much better understanding today than we did many years ago about the fact that um, this doesn't exist. This is, does not exist in the brain by itself. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, and we're seeing more of the uh, dementia cases mostly because our general health are getting better. In the past, when people already died from other diseases like cancer or stroke or heart attacks, um, then they don't live long enough to, to age. But now those diseases are getting better treated and people are living into their 80s. Then we're seeing more and more of these cases and we have to, um, we're now trying to ward off dementia um, in order to, to lead the best life that we can live. Absolutely. Um, have we taken it? I mean, I know that we read quite a bit about it, uh, certainly as the baby movers, the, the, uh, traditionally the largest population cohort head into their, into their 70s and their 80s. I imagine we'll be talking about this a lot more. But are we as a society taking the, the risks of dementia seriously enough yet? Uh, yes and no. I think um, we're now recognizing it, but I have to say Canada is behind some of the European countries in, in this aspect um, uh, where they are much more, I guess uh, we can use the word aggressive in their um, management style and also very... Um, uh, supportive in the research arena. Um, so um, Canada, we are kind of following behind. We do have great researchers. I have a lot of uh, Canadian colleagues who provide a lot of um, advances in, in learning about the disease. Uh, but from a funding point of view, uh, we are not so strong. And also in the care point of view, um, Canada is not as well coordinated and prepared as other countries. Why would that be? I would have to say probably of um, the funding priorities that the government look at. You would think dementia would be a funding priority given what a large segment of the population uh, would be would be prone uh, at this point. Yes. Um, well, we are advocating. Um, so the more people learn about us um, and help to advocate, I think it will help the government hear that. I'm trying to picture why it wouldn't work, because it is so obviously one of those things. Like we talk a lot about cancer, obviously. We talk a lot about heart disease. Um, but dementia seems to be one that we haven't talked about as much. Is it just a question of, of, of competing, you know, so many, so many different things out there competing for attention? Well, certainly the the world is a complex place, so there are a lot of competing interests. But uh, at least in the past, um, dementia is kind of brushed off as just usual aging. But we now know that it's not. It's just a very common disease in aging, but it's not normal aging. And uh, also in the past, there's kind of a stigma attached to it. So people don't talk about it as much. Um, just like mental illnesses, there's a stigma attached to it. And if you have a family member, um, they feel ashamed and they don't talk about it. And now I think society is much more open to learn about brain disease and understand that it's not something that we want on ourselves, just like cancer. Nobody wants to have cancer and nobody wants to have the dementia or mental illnesses, but, uh, but it's something that we need to understand. Um, so if we're more open talking about it and uh, as a society more acceptable to people with these type of um, problems and, um, and we're more readily to help these people. Robin Young, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thank you. Some new StatsCan numbers came out late Thursday that are sobering, disturbing on hate crimes in this country. Detailed analysis on the number of hate crimes in 2020 shows them rising by 37% overall in 2020 from 2019, 
making it the worst year for hate crimes since data collection began in 2009. Crimes targeting race or ethnicity almost doubled in 2020. Here's Don Kelly of the Canadian Press. 2,669 hate crimes were reported to police in the first year of the pandemic, the highest number since the agency started keeping track back in 2009. Hate crimes targeting race or ethnicity rose 80%, with hate crimes targeting East or Southeast Asian people skyrocketing by 301%, and those against Indigenous people soaring 152%. Hate crimes targeting religion declined for a third year in a row, with Jewish and Muslim Canadians still the most common targets. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press. A 301% increase in police-reported hate crimes against East and Southeast Asian Canadians compared to the previous year. And because StatsCan only looked at hate crimes reported to police, those numbers are almost surely an undercount of the actual number. Joining me now is Amy Goh, President of the Chinese Canadian National Council for Social Justice. Thank you for being here tonight. You're most welcome. I, I gather that although these numbers, the increases are I, you know, astounding to many, I imagine that you aren't particularly surprised about the huge jump that we've seen. Not really, um, because of what we are we've been hearing from across the country, from partner organizations, and actually, uh, two partner organizations have been still collecting uh, data uh, from individuals who have either experienced hate themselves or have witnessed hate. So, in fact, a new report will be coming out soon. Uh, so, I'm not going to divulge all the data, but but consistently, we are seeing an increase in hate, targeting Chinese and Asian, East Asian Canadians across the country. I guess when we looked at, at, at some of the numbers, there, it seems to have started to happen at a specific time, at least according to the StatsCan numbers, that it was there was a bit of a, it, a real spike, uh, mm-hmm. uh, just a ways into the pandemic. Is that what you're seeing as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually, I have to say that the Throughout the pandemic, from the beginning, even at the initial sort of like when the pandemic was just named, you know, or or called uh, by WHO and all that, we already saw the increase. But I guess there is one one area that we noticed is the the community response. You know, as the incidents increased, as media started to report on them, and, and as well as the awareness Becoming, becoming more and more um, so prominent within the Canadian community, within particularly East Asian communities. I think more, of course, hate incidents are rising, but also more and more community members are willing to come up and report. Right. I think that's another um, main factor why you are seeing uh, that consistent spike during particular time. But in fact, what we've been hearing is that since day one of the pandemic, People have been targeted. People have been, you know, experiencing uh, direct hate attacks, uh, verbal taunting online, you know, um, hate messages and all that. But I think it's whether people are more willing to report. I think that's also contributed to see that spike. Because, again, I, I get a lot of the media reporting uh, cites one Angus Reid survey yes. um, right. from July 2021 that showed that half of Asian Canadians had suffered discrimination over the past year, and that was in July of 2021. What sort of incidents are we seeing? I I mean, I think it's important for listeners to understand what it is these incidents look like and who is being targeted. Mm -hmm. So what we've been seeing is from verbal taunting, from, you know, go back to China, um, you bring the virus, you know, just like my niece working in the hospital as a doctor treating a patient with COVID, telling her that she's the virus, you know, all the way to physical assault. And we see that, um, and also a lot of an increase in online hate messages. And the, the physical assault particularly are targeting the most vulnerable, the women, the seniors, and younger people. To us, that's why so cowardice, these, you know, racists, these people who harbor such hate, they would target particularly those most vulnerable to to express their hate and express their racism. 
And, um, and these assaults actually could also include, you know, the physical contact, right? Could include uh, spitting, um, all the way, of course, to hitting my own sister walking down the street to work as a lawyer of a community vehicle clinic, uh, was bat at by a group of young, young white men on the street of Toronto. Spat at. Br- yeah, spat at. <laughs> Good thing they missed her, you know, and, yeah. and my own brother, who is a senior walking with a cane, somebody threw something at him. Good thing they missed him. So it's not like, you know, so to me, it's like they target, they think the most vulnerable, right? Women, senior, and, and they laughed and they, and they ran. And I imagine this is a story when you speak to other people, um, this is a story that you're hearing consistently. Absolutely. And the other thing is that, in fact, racism, right? Racist bullying, taunting, uh, verbal, you know, abuses on that are not new. Um, when we talk to community members across the country in the last two years, all the way from, you know, from young children to parents to seniors to uh, adults and to newcomers, as well as uh, Canadians who were born here, it could be third, fourth generation or, 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 or professionals who work in, in healthcare settings. Many, I would say, overwhelming majority had a story to tell about their experience growing up you know, being targeted because they're Asian, being targeted because they're Chinese and the racist bullying and, and in fact, also physical t- attack happen. And, um, and many of them, you know, it's, it's that, that's why it's such a triggering event for them during the last two years of the pandemic, where such a rise of physical as well as first verbal attack really uh, further traumatized their past experiences and their lived experiences of being Chinese or being East Asian in Canada. I'm speaking with Amy Goh, president of the Chinese Canadian National Council for Social Justice about new Statistics Canada numbers released today that showed a 37% overall increase in hate crimes in 2020 over 2019. Uh, When we come back, we'll discuss what can be done to try to at least stem the tide of these hate crimes and what sort of impact do these statistics, do these realities have on people trying to make a life for themselves in this country? We'll be back with that. I'm back with Amy Go, president of the Chinese Canadian National Council for Social Justice. We're talking about new Statistics Canada numbers released late this week, showing a 37% overall increase in hate crimes in Canada in 2020 over 2019. Uh, specifically in areas such as BC, there was a big jump. And one of the communities that felt the most targeted or was reported being the most targeted uh, was the Asian, Asian Canadians. I, I guess this does have an impact on quality of life, no matter what people want to say about how many people, you know, how welcoming Canada can or cannot be. This must have an impact on the conversations people have about whether Canada is a good place to live. Absolutely. You know, we pride ourselves as being a multicultural uh, country. We welcome diverse communities from around the world. This really challenges our, uh, the collective, you know, the collective identity of being Canadian. Um, and and really has an, uh, the impact. And as I mentioned, because the truth is that we have had you know, to live with racism and to live with that kind of marginalization and shunning, you know, um, yeah. for, for generations, right? And the, the pandemics just basically exacerbates all that. And what is the impact is that the message consistently is that you foreigners, you don't belong. Regardless of how many generations and how many years and how many, you know, uh, how, how much we have contributed, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. You just don't belong. You will always be seen as foreigners. And so you can imagine communities like ours, you know, who, who built a home here, who wanted to feel safe and secured in our home, in our family, and we cannot enjoy that. We will never be treated as equal. So you can imagine that devastating impact on our identity and on our sense of belonging, on our sense of security and safety. 
it's 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 tremendously tremendously traumatizing for us. Is there any um, what do you think the willingness of community members to step forward and report these incidents shows? Does it show anything positive? I think reporting itself is a positive thing. That's why I said, you know, to see the spike, to see the consistent mm-hmm. is about just like, you know, other, right? The, the gender-based violence against women, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you do see increase in reporting, which is, of course, it's bad to continue to, to that we will have to deal with that kind of uh, violence. But at the same time is that, you know, and hopefully people who are suffering all these injustice and, and violence are now coming up and say, I'm not going to put up with this. I want to deal with this. I want help. I want support. I want somebody to deal with this, right? So I think that to me is a positive. And without that, without people coming up and say that we want this stopped, we want this, you know, to, to, to be recognized as a societal issue, without that, we cannot move forward. So, of course, then the, it's like now, okay, we're coming out and report. What are we collectively going to do? with all the people who are coming out and say, we need collective action against this. And that is the bigger question that we all need to ponder and we need all to to come up with answers. The government, the federal government, had a a law proposed uh, back before the last Mm -hmm. federal election, Bill C-36. We hear it's going to be reintroduced in some form. What what were your thoughts on, on that law and how effective it could be? In fact, even we community groups have been challenging those uh, the provisions, including us, right? But we do see that as at least a step forward. Like it's about time that we acknowledge the online hate, the 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 proliferation of extremism, of hate, of marginalization, and of course attacks online have to stop. And how do we do that? And legislation, of course, is a big piece of that. So that we would hold social media companies or the corporations accountable. So that we would, first of all, recognize this as a societal problem that government has to pay a role to stop it. At the same time, we also need to uh, come up with effective measures that truly would hold these companies, you know, responsible as well as accountable. I'm, you know, that that legislation, of course, is only the first step. And there are still many, many that we that has to be done. And we hope that while bringing the legislation back is not bringing it back just as it is. Bringing it back is to listen to the community groups that have been asking for f- more uh, stringent provisions and, and more uh, effective measures to open that conversation up, to allow that revisions, to allow those strategies to be included. I think that is more important. Because right now there is no such thing as a hate crime. Is the, I mean, within Canadian law, it's not defined as such. Exactly. And that obviously, I mean, at least you, by changing that, at least you send a message to the most egregious examples. You set you set an example of those who would who would break those laws the most egregiously. It, it, exactly. It's- do you have exactly. Faith? So yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So exactly right. You know. So we don't have like what's the definition of hate and hate crime and and we do have hate crime provisions in some you know in some jurisdictions and and some police forces but not all right. So but to have that in place is again just you know again a step forward. But of course you know then it's the enforcement side. I mean I. You know, when it comes to enforcement, I just also want to say that many communities groups, particularly the Black communities and as well as Asian communities, have a very, very, you know, troubled history and relationship with the police enforcement and the justice system. So we have to recognize that. We have to recognize that that systemic inequities and injustices that we have experienced. And so dealing with hate crimes should not be just looking at it from an enforcement side, right? 
So I really, really want the government to think about rather than defining it, we really have to look at many other strategies to prevent them and to come up with more effective community responses to to stop it. And it's not just through enforcement of of agencies that so far, unfortunately, have not been um, able, you know, to build that kind of trust with the communities because of its own systemic problems. I have about a minute left, 30 seconds, a minute. Um, Are you optimistic that by shining a bright light on these issues that they will, in fact, get better? Of course, there, it, we, knew, we always need to shine lights on issues, right? But unfortunately, what I'm seeing is like Asian, uh, Asian hate is like flavor of the month, right? <laughs> when there's a spike and then you hear that and good things, stats can, came up with this report and then we get a few media to come in like you. Thank you for, you know, shining the light and consistently, you know, pushing the government and to have those voices of, uh, of advocacy, right, uh, to pressure us the government as well as collectively to do something. Otherwise, you know, I'm very concerned that once the limelight is gone, one, you know, that this is no longer the flavor of the month, again, back to things that normal, that nobody talks about it and nobody is going to do anything about it. That's always my fear. Obviously, I, I hope that's wrong, but you're, if history is any lesson, you're right to be, you're right to be concerned. Amy Go, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much. Let's head back to Ukraine now. You know, Kiev is a pretty big place. Think of it kind of like Toronto. Maybe not quite as big, but it's big. And it's been another day of destruction there. Early morning barrages, Russian barrages hitting residential buildings in Kiev. Killing one person, wounding 19. Overall, 60 civilians and four kids officially have been killed in that city in the last three weeks. 889 wounded, including 241 kids. And I try to picture sometimes what would if that was happening in a place like Toronto. Um, the city's mayor, former heavyweight boxing champion Vitaly Klitschko says Russia is targeting the innocent. Is the war against civilians. I don't see military people here. It's no military base. It's just apartments. Apartments from civilians. Vitaly Klitschko, Kiev's mayor. The indiscriminate targeting of civilians continues to fuel a refugee crisis as well. As people flee the violence, more than 6.5 million people on the move inside the country. 3.2 million have left the country, approaching a level of displacement seen from Syria in just three weeks. Well, joining me now from Ottawa is retired Lieutenant General Andrew Leslie, former Deputy Commander of the NATO Land Forces in Afghanistan and Liberal Member of Parliament for Orleans. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I wanted to start in Ukraine a bit, and we've talked a lot about um, civilian casualties over the last uh, week or so. Uh, specifically, the U- UK's Department of Defense today released another report talking about what would only be called indiscriminate shelling of civilian areas. How disturbing has this been to witness from your perspective, and what could possibly be done to try to stop it? Well, it's horrifying. Uh, tragically, I've seen it before, uh, both in Uh, the former Yugoslavia, and in Afghanistan. I I commend the remarkable courage of the Ukrainian defenders and their leadership, of which all those who are against that sexual path Putin are, are revering right now. It's probably going to get worse, unfortunately. In the short term, mainly because a variety of political leaders didn't respond when Russia took four months to build up to 200,000, which probably gave Putin the idea that he could go ahead and succeed. NATO's not ready to get into war with Russia and to intervene piecemeal before a certain critical mass of aircraft, anti-aircraft missiles and soldiers are available to defend um, or to um, do what has to be done, it's going to take some more time. By the way, I don't want to leave anybody with the impression that there's guilt on NATO or guilt on any specific individual apart from Putin and his uh, fellow thugs who originated this slaughter. Absolutely. I mean, I, um, 
the invasion, the illegal invasion, of course, rests on the shoulders. The guilt of that rests on the shoulders of one regime and one regime alone. Today is the anniversary of the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Was there an opportunity, from your perspective, were there opportunities missed to try to make sure that Vladimir Putin didn't feel that he could do this? Well, I, I'm, I'm delighted to hear you articulate that Putin must have thought he could win, otherwise he wouldn't have done it. And there were definitely lost victories in there for us, us being NATO, us being the people who abhor what's going on inside the Ukraine, vis-a-vis the innocent being slaughtered or anybody being killed. Right now, though, we are, unfortunately, that old army saying, we are where we are. Opportunities were missed. A whole bunch of Western nations cashed in a peace dividend, didn't resource their armed forces appropriately. There's the quick reaction forces aren't that quick, and they're not reacting that swiftly. So we're kind of stuck for a while. We're stuck until NATO can build up a critical mass of combat power. At the same time, we're dealing with Putin, psychopath, supported by his generals and his oligarchs. And, and by the way, it's not all on Putin, right? Because he's got 200,000 troops there, and obviously some of them don't want to be there. But there's Russians who are driving those tanks and dropping those bombs who are doing the actual killing on the pointy end, and they share equal blame. But we've got to figure out how you deal with someone who's made some really bad decisions. So Putin thought, for example, that his army was much better than it actually is, that his equipment was much more modern than it actually is, that you know the weather would cooperate and bend to as well, which it never does in Russia. So that was a really stupid thing to do, was to invade during mud season. He underestimated the leadership of the Ukraine, which has shown itself to be exemplary. He underestimated the passion and spirit of the Ukraine defenders, both soldiers and people who were civilians three short weeks ago. Which, I mean, their, their fight is remarkable. He also underestimated the will of NATO. So the thing that he fears the most, that NATO would coalesce and regain its mojo, uh, is happening. And he also fears the fact that NATO might decide to spend more, an adequate amount on defense instead of cashing a peace dividend. And that's going to happen, or it better happen. I mean, we have a NATO leaders meeting, uh, a NATO countries leaders meeting coming up next week. Uh, do you expect to see anything substantial in the short term from NATO? They'll probably discuss the no-fly zone, which yeah, it's a really tough one to solve. Putin's made it clear that if he sees NATO aircraft over the Ukraine or NATO aircraft dropping bombs on his air defense systems, which will be firing up at the NATO aircraft trying to impose the no-fly zone. So that's if we go with the no-fly zone, we'll actually end up bombing and attacking Russian ground troops. Then he will consider that an act of war. And because he's now got a reputation for making really stupid and silly decisions, which you and I as relatively normal people can understand, we can't assume that his next series of decisions will be rational either. And unlike you and I, he has access to weapon systems, which are, well, they're, they're the door to Armageddon, chemical and nuclear weapons. In the short term, I hope that uh, NATO will... Um, move more swiftly in deploying its troops to the Baltic states and along that eastern corridor, that eastern flank of NATO. I hope they deploy more air assets to be able to do what has to be done inevitably, because one of three things is going to happen. Either Russia is going to grind its way up to the Polish-Hungarian-Baltic state border, in which case we'll have to face off against the Russian bear and stop them going any further, or Putin will be replaced by some eager young subordinate. Well, we're not sure what that subordinate might do. Will he continue or she? Will he withdraw? We don't know. Uh, or they'll flee in disarray uh, and most of the Russian state will start to collapse from internal inequities and pressures. But that'll still cause tremendous anxiety and tension because, once again, it's a state with enormous numbers of nuclear and chemical weapons and they'll have to be watched. So we've got to get ready. We've got to get troops there. And that isn't happening quickly enough. I was going to say, from someone who knows his military planning, none of those options sound particularly attractive. No, they don't. There's no easy way out of this. Putin was convinced he could win. He managed to obviously convince his inner circle, whoever that is, that they could win collectively. It's pretty clear that it's not going as planned. And um, desperate men, and it's mainly all men, desperate men do desperate things. I'm speaking with 
retired Lieutenant General Andrew Leslie, former Deputy Commander of the NATO leaders, NATO land forces rather in Afghanistan and Liberal Member of Parliament for Orleans. After this, we'll come back, we'll change, we'll talk about not a war of the present, but a war of the past and the Canadian soldiers who fought to liberate Europe uh, more than 70 years ago now, and a condo development, a controversial condo development uh, that could be going up at Juneau Beach, site of where hundreds of Canadians died in the Normandy landings in 1944. That's next. I'm back with retired Lieutenant General Andrew Leslie, former Deputy Commander of the NATO Land Forces in Afghanistan and Liberal Member of Parliament for Orleans. Um, this is a, 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 to change gears uh, completely, but also an, a, you know, a subject that I think is, is definitely worth talking about. A condo development to be built at Juneau Beach. It sounds like an awful idea if you're a Canadian, and I'm wondering what to make of it. It is an awful idea. <laughs> Here we are you know, talking about a Russian bear rabid Russian bear rampaging across Ukraine, slaughtering innocents. And there's no doubt that in in the Ukraine, their memory will be forever revered and honored. And the sites of the pitched battles will be places of of quiet reflection. And yet we had 14,000 Canadians either landing from the landing craft or parachuting into France. My father was one of them. (laughs) <laughs> they seized Juno Beach, which was our beach, our entrance into the contribution for the eventual victory. We had over a thousand casualties, pretty close to 400 killed. A bunch of people got together and created a monument and to a lot of self-funding. The feds kick in a bit of it, but it's mainly private funding and it's a magnificent site and the French government is on side with it. So are the locals. And then we've got this wealthy condo developer who wants to take over essentially the site of the beach and use the access road to this memorial site for his entranceway and driveway and all that. It's just, it's unbelievable that it's got to this point. It is. I was, here we are. Yeah, I was surprised to read that, of course, the, uh, you know, the Juno Beach Center, I, I, I've been to Normandy, uh, the Juno, it, it, it is a, anyone who's never been there, I recommend you do it as a Canadian at least once in your life, if you can. Uh-huh. I'm glad um, to hear you went. Yeah, it is a yeah, it's a sobering spot. Um, but I guess the the Juno Beach Center knows that it's in France, so it doesn't want to play too hard on the politics. But really, the problem here is they want to use the access road that is theirs to build this, and that could see the center closed for years, which would be a travesty. Yeah, I mean, quite frankly, um, and we're just talking about Russia. You know, the poor Juno Center has spent $400,000 on legal fees. So this is a classic case of, it's almost like the developers acting like a Russian oligarch, trying to use every tool at their disposal to get their way to reap great profits while disrupting a historical site. So, you know, the Juno Beach Center is in trouble. It's It's in danger, actually, of being subsumed into this larger hole of a yet more multi-million dollar condos overlooking a beach, which Canadians bled on. You know your diplomacy. <laughs> what can we do? What can Canada do? What should we do to try to make this stop? I realize it's a probably like everything here in this country, it's, it probably boils down to a municipal zoning issue uh, to some extent. But what can we do to put pressure on, on, on the French to make this go away? Well, it's not only pressure on the French, much akin to the earlier topic, it's also our federal officials. So uh, there's, you know, information on how to send letters to the Minister of Veterans Affairs, who quite frankly should be all over this and should be sticking up for Canadians, especially those who paid the ultimate price. And I don't see a lot of that happening. The Minister of Foreign Affairs as well. How about the French ambassador to Canada? And how about to any French contacts you may have? What we need is we need the government to step up to the plate and honor the memory of those who served in literally a war that changed the world and show some resolve. Don't hide behind the screen of bureaucracy and you know interdepartmental, well, who's going to take care of this and who's going to solve it? And yes, I do know a little bit about diplomacy, but I think everyone who's listening will realize I'm not a very good diplomat. 
you're an effective diplomat. I always thought <laughs> <laughs> whether it works or not is a different is, is uh, yeah. effective. You know, I, I think it, you, what you want here, I think, is you want to prod people into doing something. You'd think with the amount of, I mean, every single day I receive, you know, notices of who's been talking to who on the phone about what all of it, Ukraine. But you'd think this would be a, an opportune time now that we have the ear, for instance, of the French. This would be an opportune time to bring this up and put this to bed fast. Yeah. And if it's a question of a tiny bit of money, I mean, this government just finished spending hundreds of billions of dollars. I'm not arguing about that. I kind of wish they'd spent a tiny bit more on defense, actually an awful lot more on defense more quickly. But we'll get back to that. And this is not a lot, not a, necessarily an ask for money. It's an ask for protection from another sovereign government, French, to make sure that this developer doesn't get his way and reap a profit on the essentially while standing on the shoulders of our fallen. That is, it does bring up an interesting point. Why do you think, uh, over the years, our governments have been so eager to embrace the successes of what's been built to commemorate Juno Beach, but so ineffective to some extent at supporting it? You know, I think it's time for a little bit of an attitude change on how we govern and also the idea of, of ministerial responsibility. You know, what's happening in Ukraine is the responsibility of Putin and those who support him and those who are actually engaged in the killing of the innocent Ukrainians. What happens in this instance, through our monument dedicated to veterans, Canadian veterans, are dead, is the responsibility of the Prime Minister of Canada and the Ministers of Veterans Affairs. Get on with it. Stop with the pretty speeches. Stop with the gosh golly. Just get it done. And that is something which I find increasingly absent from the realm of federal politics, especially those who are governing. If you got a problem, try to solve it. This is not a big problem. It is for those who no longer can defend themselves, i.e. those who passed on after fighting so violently on the beaches or are dead and wounded, and they can't help themselves. So that's what the Department of Veterans Affairs is there for. So the Minister of Veterans Affairs should get on a plane, get over there and solve this problem. No rush. But, you know, if he leaves sometime tomorrow, that would be soon enough. <laughs> There is a timeline here, I gather. It is, it is going to happen relatively soon if it isn't stopped. Yeah, very soon. It's been going on for about two years now. And as mentioned, the poor center, which relies on visitors such as yourself and myself over the years, you know, they spent $400,000 in legal fees. So they're in trouble financially and they rely on donations to carry on the good fight, but just well to sustain the education center and the displays, which you've seen and can comment on later. But this is the time for government to stop waffling, stop dithering, and just sort it out. Andrew Leslie, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure.